And Jesus is enough. Praise the Lord. We um, will be going through some various texts today, actually. So um, if you'd all just kind of pay attention, follow along, this is going to be a topical. And uh, we've been working through, if you're visiting today, 1 Timothy. We've gone through four chapters. We're about to hit chapter 5 next week, going for the home stretch. And um, in the meantime, I've been saying this whole this whole time we've been in 1 Timothy that we're going to talk about the Word of God. How we know what we have today is what the apostles originally wrote. And uh, so I'm going to fulfill that pledge that I gave several weeks ago. And um, in the past three weeks, if you've been with us, we've been talking a lot about the Word of God. The Holy Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 4 has trained us to be nourished on the words of God. We discovered all of that is profitable for godliness. We need to know what God asks of us in order to to, um, please Him in our behavior. We also found that we are commanded to give special attention to the public reading of Scripture, to uh, exhortation, that is preaching and teaching the Word as well. And and by persevering in these things last week, we realized, we, we came to understand that we'll ensure the salvation of a whole lot of folks just by remaining loyal to the Word of God. Nobody ever gets saved apart from the declaration of God's Word. And that's because God's Word contains God's message to His people. God has chosen, He's ordained, that those who who He's chosen from the beginning of the foundation, before the foundation of the world, would come to know Him through the proclamation of the Scriptures. And we are previously spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, we know from Ephesians 2.1. We, we will be made alive, Colossians 2.13. And 1 Peter 1.23 excuse me, says, We are born again of seed which is imperishable. Remember that from last week? That seed's imperishable, and Peter explains that is through the living and enduring Word of God. So is it the enduring Word of God? That's what we're going to discuss today. And many facts, many gee whiz facts that you will learn today, hopefully they'll be encouraging to you. Um, And and in fact, with being born again by the Word of God, we're not a whole lot unlike Lazarus. Remember, Remember Lazarus in the tomb? Though he was very much dead, he was physically dead, at the sound of God's voice, at the sound of the Word of God, that God being Jesus Christ Himself, He rose. He rose from the dead. And by the spoken Word of God, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And you all know why He called out Lazarus' name, Lazarus, come forth, right? Yeah, if He just said, come forth, all the tombs would have emptied. Lazarus, come forth, the Gospel of John says, and, and, and bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And he was raised at Christ's word. And Lazarus was unbound and he was set free. And if you remember the passage that I read last week as we were talking about uh, Christ reading Scripture in Luke chapter 4, Jesus stood in the synagogue to read the scroll of Isaiah saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives. Of the captives. Those who are in bondage to sin are captive, but they're set free at the word of God. 
as it's revealed in the Scriptures. And, and that good news is, is that Jesus Christ died for your sins willingly on the cross, bearing the sins of many, so that we could be set free from that penalty ourselves. And, but and, until we actually hear this Word, the Word of God, and, and be, until we're quickened by the Holy Spirit, we remain dead. Because according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Holy Word, the, the Scriptures are spiritually discerned. A natural man can't understand them. They're spiritually discerned. And our hearts has to be, heart has to be quickened to receive the Word. So regeneration is a divine work. That's why you can tell people year after year, you have friends, you have family members, you have others, tell them over and over again the Gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He rose from the dead. Worship Him. It's lauded for man to die once and then comes the judgment. You know, bow the knee now, and you can tell them over and over again, and they don't listen. They're imprisoned. They're blind. But the Word of God is living and active. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.7, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, Paul says, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the Word of God is not imprisoned. That is not held in prison. It goes forth. We have this prophetic Word made more sure. And we need to realize that when we talk about Scripture as being prophetic, um, that this word prophecy doesn't alone by itself mean something in the future. It is not The word prophecy doesn't mean a future event as you see in all the movies. Alone by itself, the Hebrew word for prophecy simply means God speaking forth. And a prophet spoke for God. It was God's word going forth. A prophet spoke on behalf of God. He spoke God's word. So to prophesy simply means to speak forth God's message. That's what a prophet did. Sometimes it had a futuristic element to it. Sometimes it had a prediction. But that's not the prophecy itself. That was a part of the prophecy. This whole connotation of a prophecy always being a future event, like in the movies, that didn't come around till a few hundred years ago. That was added. That's not what the word alone means. That's why the Apostle, Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter said in, in 2 Peter 1.16, he's talking to the apostles now, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's the utterance they heard. And Peter continues, And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Jesus on the holy mountain. This was the Mount of Transfiguration. And he summarizes saying, So we have the prophetic word, God's word, the speaking of God's word. We have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, Peter says, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's what the word of God does. It is a lamp in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Listen to this. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture... Is a matter of one's own interpretation. What he's saying there, it's not, it didn't originate in man. It didn't come from man. 
For no prophecy of Scripture, Peter says, was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Ghost spoke from God. That's how we got the Bible. Men moved by the Holy Ghost spoke from God. So this word prophecy indicates men who are moved by the Holy Spirit to speak for God. That's a prophet. And then they, sometimes one of their close associates, wrote God's message down. The prophets wrote it down. The apostles wrote it down. And the important principle that we must realize here is that our our message from God, the gospel and the teaching from God, is contained and preserved in written words. Written words. We don't hear Isaiah speaking anymore. He's not alive. He's not walking the earth. What he wrote is still here. But Scripture is not. And the Bible itself never claims to be preserved in any specific language. It's, it's not contained in a specific language. That would be Islam and the Quran. They say that you can't understand it accurately if you don't know Aramaic. Arabic. Thank you, Ruth. If you don't know Arabic and you can't read it in the original Arabic, it does you no good, they say. It's contained in a language. I'd say it doesn't do you any good anyhow. No matter how much Arabic you speak. Instead, Peter says, we have the prophetic word made sure. That's what we have, God's word. Peter doesn't say we have the prophetic language made sure. Yes, Scripture, it was originally written by the apostles and prophets, primarily in Hebrew and Greek. A small sections in Aramaic, that's, that's part of Daniel, and, and that was probably while he was in captivity in Babylon. And, and God's word was preserved and presented to the people in their common language. Common language. It was written in Hebrew by, by the Old Testament prophets. Hebrew was Israel's common language. Part of Daniel was written in Aramaic, likely when he was in Babylon, the common language. And the New Testament was written by the apostles and their associates in common Greek. Just layman's Greek. Not classical Greek, just the common language of the people. And again, that was the language of the Roman Empire. So God's message is preserved in written words. That means it is preserved in the definition of each word. Not in a language. It's preserved in the definition of each word. This is why... Long before Christ, about 300 years before, and, and after the Greek had become the universal language of the Roman Empire, the Israelites themselves commissioned 70 men to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. They commissioned 70 men. That translation is known as the Septuagint. The Septuagint. Septa means 70. And... and uh, is there any way that we can know for certain, we might ask, that this practice of translating those Hebrew Old Testaments into the Greek Septuagint is okay with God? Is that all right with Him? There actually is. There's an experiential way to start off, how we know that that's all right. Because I don't think anyone here knows Greek or Hebrew. Anyone fluent in reading Greek or Hebrew? So everyone here came to faith by reading a translation of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek scriptures. Everyone here came to faith through a translation. We accept that the Bible can be translated. Um, imagine the barriers to the gospel worldwide 
If everywhere we went, New Guinea and every island and every remote location, I hear on New Guinea there's something like 800 languages on that island itself. Imagine if everywhere we went we had to first teach people Hebrew and Greek before they could become a Christian. Wouldn't make any sense, would it? No. Um, Beyond that experience that we've come to faith through our translation, some Spanish, some Portuguese here probably, um, English as well, Um, is there any practical way that we can know that this translating into modern languages is acceptable to God? Is there a practical way? There is. There is. We know this because the apostles, the apostles themselves, we know who uh, predominantly spoke Greek in that era. And they wrote the New Testament in Greek. Um, They also, most often when they were writing the New Testament... Most often, they quote the Old Testament from the Septuagint. Almost the majority of the time, almost all the time, when the, when the apostles are writing the New Testament in Greek, they are quoting directly from this Septuagint, the translation. So they look at it as authoritative. Uh, scribes, scholars can look at these... these um, Manuscripts of the Septuagint and the manuscripts of the New Testament when the writers say, when they quote the Old Testament, and because of word order, because of word choice, they can find out that identically comes from the Septuagint. Peter, John, uh, Paul, these guys were quoting the Hebrew translation into Greek. And you know, that became very handy. Very handy because... As Paul and the other apostles went into the world to share the gospel in Thessalonica and all these other cities, what were those cities speaking? Greek. So they carry with them the Greek Old Testament, and they would cite the Greek when they were speaking to the folks and leading them to Christ. Even Timothy, Titus, uh, many others, they were Paul's Greek-speaking friends. So they primarily used the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and the the amassing Greek New Testament as they went throughout the Roman Empire. For this reason, we can know that the apostles were perfectly comfortable using a Bible translation, and they're perfectly comfortable that God has preserved His Word through the meaning and definitions of the words through preserving the definitions of the words. We'll talk about that a little later. This is why throughout the last 2,000 years, 1,900 and some odd years, people have been saved throughout this time reading the words of the Bible translated into the Latin Vulgate, into William Tyndale's English translation, which he was murdered for, by the way, for doing that, uh, into Martin Luther's German translation, a very famous one there, up into the translations now available in Mandarin, Russian, Spanish, Korean, Polish, and Farsi, which is a native language of Iran. They're reading the Bible, the Word of God, over there, and people are coming to faith. So all of these Bibles written in these various languages are God's Word, as long as the definition of each word is faithfully maintained when they translate it. And, and as long as the goal is to preserve this literal definition of the Hebrew-Greek, a little bit Aramaic, meaning a literal uh, translation, God is showing through the Septuagint and others, He has no problem with that. People will come to faith through the proclamation of God's Word across the planet, all kinds of languages. 
And, and that's another reason, by the way, that we have all of these uh, fine uh, scholars, authors, humble, um, godly spiritual leaders of our day, uh, notably Albert Moeller, John MacArthur, Woodrow Kroll, Alistair Begg, Chuck Swindoll, John Piper, etc. All who, I don't know about all, I would expect all read very fluent Greek and Hebrew, but they're also all very comfortable using an English translation because they know that the word is preserved in the definitions of the words. Praise God, none of us had to master Greek and Hebrew. Um, and, and we have in our hands this eyewitness testimony of the apostles that Peter talked about. He heard God's proclamation of Christ in the holy mountain. He's, they've written things down over time. And you re- recall from our scripture reading just a few minutes ago that Jesus promised to send His Holy Spirit to preserve the scriptures. And in John 15, 13, Jesus said to his apostles, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, meaning the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you, he's saying to the apostles. This is as they're going to be writing the scriptures now. And Jesus also says uh, in the previous chapter, John 14, verse 26. Everyone should memorize this one, excuse me. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's what Jesus said to the apostles. The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all. Even though they are going through this trial, This difficult time, the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. The accuracy of these events surrounding Christ and His resurrection and everything were never vested in in how good the memory was of the apostles. Understand that. It was all guided by the Holy Spirit, superintended by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that their memories and the accuracy of their letters and the facts were preserved by the Holy Spirit. That's why in 2 Timothy 3.16, famous verse, all Scripture is God-breathed. Theonoustos. God-breathed. Noustos is nostril. Scripture came straight from the nostrils of God. It was breathed out from God by the Holy Spirit. And it says that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every Good work. Scripture is God breathed. All of it. Every part of it. And and Christians who've been born again by the Spirit of God, by default, we accept the things from the Spirit of God and the Scriptures. We don't really doubt the Scriptures a lot, generally. God didn't indwell us with a spirit of doubting, right? He gave us a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out to Him, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And, and there's really no, there uh, should be no question for Christians accepting the Holy Scriptures because Jesus himself promised that God the Holy Spirit would preserve them. Really not a big problem for most Christians. Um, sometimes we have questions when we first come to faith, how did this all work? But, but we, we accept it. When we're born again and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we naturally accept the things of the Spirit of God. Even sometimes when we don't quite understand them all yet. 
that we're all growing. We're all growing in understanding. If you can't trust what Jesus had said, or that the Holy Spirit will preserve it throughout the church age, why would you be here today? If you can't trust the Bible. But we can. And that's what we're going to get to. All Scripture is God-breathed. Another point. We're not to be, we mentioned this before a few weeks ago, we're not to be red-letter Christians. That's important to know. Um, you know, where we give a lot of weight to the words that are printed in red. If you've got one of those editions of the Bible, red words, they're Jesus' words. And, and uh, we're not to emphasize those and then discredit, discount, dismiss the other letters of the Bible. Written by the apostles and, and uh, Old Testament writers. And, and we run into this quite a bit in our day, because the unbelievers don't especially like quite a few of the passages in, in the Bible. We, we looked at uh, just a few weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, which we explained the Apostle Paul writes and went into great explanation of why he writes this, a very, very reasonable explanation. But he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And we talked about that and why it says that. But you know, unbelievers will say, that's just what Paul teaches. No, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Um, or we'll go to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where Peter says, There's salvation in no one else, for there is no name, other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. The exclusivity of the gospel given by uh, Peter, recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. And the critics will just say, You know, that's just Peter. Maybe Luke got it wrong. Maybe he heard wrong when he wrote it down. You'll, you'll hear this kind of stuff. And may, maybe he just didn't get it down right. No. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is all equally authoritative, cover to cover. It's all fully preserved by the Holy Spirit. There's no more inspired and less inspired portions of Scripture. Everything's the Bible. And Luke, by the way, the guy who wrote Acts... He's the same young man who wrote the Gospel of Luke, which contains a lot of those red letters. You can't separate the two. Same men who wrote the epistles were writing the Gospels. If you can't trust one, how do you trust the other? Um, you know, red letters, things like this, they're very creative, very helpful ways for us to see when Christ is speaking. But they weren't around until the modern printing press. That never happened. I mean, the Apostle Paul didn't have a different a red ink pen. Say, oh, wait, I think Jesus is talking here. Let me write it down. And No. No, this was, these are modern inventions. There are many of these. Uh, it might be very helpful for us who are new in the faith or newer in the faith uh, to also realize not just the red ink, but there were no chapter breaks or verse numbers when the Apostles wrote them down. They were writing down those little numbers in between. And, and um, the chapter divisions themselves were not included by God in the original writings. They were added as a very helpful tool by man in the year 1227 A.D. They were added in and broken up by man. Easier to find a location. They're an assistance. They're very helpful. And the verse numbers were not implemented until 1555 A.D. after the printing press was invented. So these are all added. Chapter verses... 
red ink, other things are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. We just need to be aware of that when we're, when we're reading these. And you know, there are actually Bibles that you can buy without the numbers in them and stuff. You just read them through in a letter as it was written. Um, one other thing with the verses, which are very, very helpful. But a lot of times we'll memorize a verse and pull it out of context. The numbers have made us say, well, I can remember that verse, I'll pull it out. And you forget what the context is and what it actually means. So we need to be aware of that. These letters are written down as a continuously flowing letter, most of them. Apostles, they didn't even use paragraph breaks. No paragraph breaks. Um, Does any of this information add value or help? Am I just rambling on here? No, it will help. It will help. Because Scripture says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as a division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is that sharp. And the application is this. The word of God penetrates people's hearts. Uh, You may be witnessing to people. You may not know what the verse number is. You might not remember the chapter, but you know what it says. And you can quote to someone out of the street or on the corner that the grave is empty, that Christ is the Son of the living God, and all these things. And you don't have to necessarily remember each verse number in order to witness effectively. Because the Holy Spirit didn't put the verse numbers in there. Man did that later on. But you know what the scriptures say. So a lot of times we'll get caught up and like, should I even quote this to this person? I don't remember. I'll be embarrassed. I don't remember which book it comes out of. No, let it fly. <laughs> let it fly, folks. You, you, sure, we'd want to remember where it came from. We want to memorize scriptures and we're diligent at this church in doing that. But don't get tripped up or, or stammering for a verse number. You don't have to have that for God to change someone's heart. So have confidence when you go out witnessing to people. Um, Paragraph breaks were added. Chapter numbers added. Red ink has been added. All very helpful. Begs a question. What else has been added? Right? What's crept in over the centuries? Reasonable question. How can we know that the books of the Bible read the same as they did 2,000 years ago? Can we even know? Because, you know, we don't have the originals. They're copied so many times that the apostles wrote on papyrus paper, brittle paper, probably turned to dust in no time. Copy, copy, copy. And and what we have in our hands today uh, are translations of handwritten copies of handwritten copies of handwritten copies over a couple thousand years. Then we get the age of the printing press, 1440 A.D., Oh, it's quiet. Don't worry. As Christians born of the Spirit of God, we don't doubt the message. But can we have assurance that what we have in our hands today is the true written Word of God? Can we have that assurance? How do we know? Because with all this copying, it would appear that after 2,000 years have passed, that we're drifting further and further from the truth. Every copy that's made. Is that so? Do we have what was originally written down? Because when the Dutch theologian, you might have heard of him, Erasmus, when Erasmus wrote his first Greek translation, trying to bring back the original Greek language because it had been Latin for hundreds of years, when Erasmus made the translation back into Greek, 
he could only find in his possession in the year 1516 six, he might have had seven handwritten Greek manuscripts. Six or seven. That's it. Over the past, over 1500 years had passed. And none of these manuscripts that he had in his hand when he wrote the Texas Receptus were earlier than 1200 A.D. The oldest one he had had 300 years. What happened before 1200 A.D.? We'll talk about that. There was, a, there was an 1100-year gap between the copies that Erasmus had and the hand of the apostle writing it. What happened over the 1100 years in the medieval period? Christians are wondering, uh, did the Holy Spirit preserve it through that? It's a reasonable question of skeptics. What changes might have been made to the Bible by the medieval church? Sounds scary. Well, until recently, Christians really didn't have a confident way to answer that question. But today we do. Something very marvelous has happened in the last several decades. It's a human preoccupation with discovery combined with a modern science known as archaeology. And this has caused the number of handwritten ancient manuscripts. This is before the printing press. The number of handwritten ancient manuscripts has exploded from six or seven that Erasmus had to well over 20,000. 20,000 ancient handwritten manuscripts, some dating back to within a few decades or less of the apostles. And one fragment that uh, was written on papyrus, it contains portions of the Gospel of John front and back, has been firmly dated uh, by secular scientists of originating as early as the 90s A.D. You know the Apostle John was still alive in the 90s A.D. It goes back that far. That's a very early one. And these handwritten manuscripts include over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Those were the original language. Over 10,000 Latin copies, now nearly 10,000 of ancient translations written, written in things like uh, languages like Egyptian, Aramaic, Coptic, Slavonic, Syriac, all kinds of them, 10,000 copies. And, and the copies, especially the oldest ones that are written on papyrus, uh, they're quickly multiplying. A, a number of these date back within a few decades of the apostles. The archaeologists are discovering Older and older manuscripts all the time. All the time. So this idea that we're drifting further away from the truth and further from what the uh, apostles originally wrote, that is a fallacy. That is a fallacy. In actuality, as time passes, we are getting closer and closer to what the apostles originally wrote every time that the shovel hits the dirt. They're unearthing more and more copies. And... Now we have this abundance of ancient Bible manuscripts, abundance of them. The, the majority of them are, are not a fragment. They're not a portion. Actually, a small number are. But the average length of these tens of thousands of handwritten manuscripts is over 450 pages. That's a lot. That's a lot. By comparison, we have only seven copies of Plato. Seven copies total. It's all that they have. The oldest copy of Plato comes from 900 A.D. 
Uh, we have 49 copies, a bit more in comparison, of Aristotle. The oldest copy of Aristotle is 1100 AD. We have nothing before that. So we have a 1,200-year gap or more between Plato and Aristotle writing the actual two men, and the first copies that we have in their position. There's a gap there. But you never hear a college professor doubt what Plato has said. They never doubt what Aristotle has said. They only doubt what the Christians in Jesus Christ say. If you were to take those seven copies of Plato and set them on top of each other, it would probably be about this high, about that high. If you were to take our ancient Bible manuscripts, handwritten, and stack them on top of each other, how high do you think that stack would be? Five stories? Maybe 20 stories tall? As tall as the Empire State Building? Maybe the Sears Tower, maybe? How about the world's tallest building? That is in Dubai. Would it be as tall as that? That's 2,700 feet there. Look at the other skyscrapers around it. Our stack of manuscripts would be double that high. Double that high. Over a mile high if you put all of our manuscripts on top of one another. Handwritten ancient manuscripts. And you could take these uh, manuscripts, you could lay them down on its side, the handwritten ones chronologically, in order, from the earliest ones we have all the way up to the advent of the printing press, and you can lay them side by side, and we would have an average of around 1,500 handwritten manuscripts per century since the period of the apostles up until the hard copies were made on the printing press. The marvelous thing is, you can trace the consistency of these through every century, through every copy, all the way from the first few decades where the apostles wrote up until our modern Bibles. And the evidence is irrefutable. Absolutely nothing in the Bible has changed. Nothing. The Holy Spirit has preserved God's word. We know exactly what the Bible said in the first century for Christians. We know exactly. Nothing has changed. And... and, and we, ho- we know that we hold in our hands the exact testimony the, the apostles themselves gave. And you're going to hear inconsistencies are in the Bible. You're going to hear uh, that in the early manuscripts, uh, the Bible critics, they call them um, textual variants. You're going to hear that fancy word passed around. Don't be troubled or deceived by textual variants. 99% of these so-called variants are a one-letter spelling error or a very minor word order change, such as Christ Jesus and Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Christ Jesus. Nothing changes. They call that a variant. Nothing varying there. We know exactly what it says. Um, Never in any of these manuscripts is any interpretation of any passage or Bible doctrine ever compromised or threatened in these manuscripts. And there's a man named Bart Ehrman. You may know of him. He's one of the most renowned secular critics of Christianity in the Bible. 
Uh, he is a scholar. Uh, no doubt he's, he's very intelligent, very well-schooled. He knows manuscripts. He understands what he's talking about. He is an atheist. And he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, which is very critical towards Christianity. But Bart Ehrman, the specialist that he is, was asked about these textual variants because he's a textual critic. And and how substantial, how significant these variants are. So they're asking him, an unbeliever, and Bart Ehrman admitted by saying this, quote, Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Nothing's compromised. Nothing is compromised. Unquote. I didn't, he didn't say that nothing's compromised. I said that. <laughs> Don't want to get sued here. Or anything like you see, atheists and critics of the Bible are not bothered by the inconsistencies of what the Bible says. They are bothered by the consistency of what the Bible says, and they don't like it because the message of the Bible and Jesus Christ is so undeniably clear. Clear. And and God's word, his message has been preserved. It doesn't matter what language it's translated into as long as the definition of each word is maintained, faithfully maintained. Now and then it takes two, sometimes three words in English to translate one Greek word. It's not a big deal. Properly preserving the meaning. Um, All you need in your hand is a translation that had the intent of faithfully preserving the definitions of these words and the language and the context. And you have the Word of God. And and, and it doesn't matter um, whether that place that Jesus rose from is called a sepulcher or a tomb or a grave or as the Turkish call it, a mezar over in Turkey. They're all the same thing. And in, in fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew primarily uses the word for that place where Jesus arose from. He primarily uses the Greek word grave. And over in Luke, the other Gospel writer, he primarily uses the Greek word tomb. And, and there's two different words from the Greek language. Uh, they essentially describe the same place. If you're faithful to the definition and the interpretation, it doesn't matter which term you use for grave. We all know exactly what they're talking about. And that grave is empty. Jesus Christ is risen. And to reach the cultures of the world, the Word of God is translated into any language you want. Russian, Bosnian, English, Portuguese. Way too often, way too often Christians argue about this preservation of the Bible. Way too often. And uh, to this, Paul commands in 2 Timothy 2.14, Remind the church of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useful and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Instead, he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. It is the word of truth. We have a number of excellent literal translations in our hands. Excellent ones. I would suggest a literal one. Don't get the Disney version. No, but try to find a preserved uh, translation. The one I use is the New American Standard Bible. Very literal. The most literal modern translation that they've made. Excellent. The King James Version is excellent. The New King James Version is excellent. The English Standard Version is English. Uh, 
English Standard Version, excellent. Holman Christian Standard is excellent. All literal interpretations. There's a few disputed verses. Um, Are they original? Are they not original? Of this, whether it's King James Version or other versions, you know, there's always accusations made. People want to get in and wrangle a little bit. And they'll say, you know... The modern people will say, the King James, they added a couple of verses there. Their violation of Revelation 22, they've added to the Word of God. Then the uh, King James people say, no, no, you've taken away from the Word of God. Neither are true. None of those locations, those very remote, isolated verses, change any doctrine. No, no doctrine is added. No doctrine is taken away in any of those. Any, any place that it says has one of those things, it is reaffirmed throughout the balance of Scripture. We have no doctrinal differences of any kind in these literal versions. God word, God's Word is preserved. The Bible assures us it is preserved. This is one of the reasons that we have uh, Kim Hibbard as one of our missionaries. She's over translating into all kinds of wonderful languages, taking the Word of God to the first time to people. Revelation 14.6 says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation, and to every tribe, and every language, and every people. That's where we're taking the gospel to. We know that every knee will bow, every tongue, that is language, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. A couple fast facts as, we, as I wrap up. If we had no manuscripts, none, we would be able to replicate the entire Bible, no problem whatsoever, by millions of quotations by the early church fathers. And these men were not known for their brevity when they wrote. They wrote entire commentaries. Even if we didn't have the manuscripts, you can reproduce the entire Bible through their writings, the early church fathers. Another fun fact, Isaiah the scroll. For... A very long time textual uh, critic said this was written after Jesus because it talks about his hands being pierced, his side, everything. You know, all the Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, all these predictions about Jesus Christ. And uh, the modernists came, 17, 1800s, and said there is no way that Isaiah could have written that specific about Jesus Christ before Jesus was born. And the earliest manuscript that we had for Isaiah was something like seven or 800 A.D. That's all we had as far as an ancient manuscript. And they had a field day. They said, there's no way this was written back in Isaiah when he talks about Hezekiah and stuff hundreds of years before Christ. Some scribe, some scholar made this up. They knew about Jesus already because it's just too, too accurate. And... Um, Does anybody know what happened in 1949? The Dead Sea Scrolls. And these scrolls in these caves over in in the Middle East, they found a bunch of old manuscripts that were preserved by by an ancient people before Christ. Essenes, I think it's pronounced, was, was these people. And they went in there and they found a plethora of manuscripts. And in there they found an entire manuscript of Isaiah that predated Jesus Christ. 
we know that Isaiah wrote that before Christ was hung on the cross. No doubt about it. What do they say now? Those same critics? I don't, we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, we, we are so humbled in your ability, your power to preserve your holy word that uh, we would come before you as redeemed sinners, Lord, bringing glory to Jesus Christ through the knowledge that we've received through your holy word, Lord. We, we marvel in your ability to, uh, to change our lives through the written word, Lord. And we're thankful that we have it. We're thankful that we have this commission to proclaim it, to take it to our neighbors, Lord, to bring honor to you. Lord, strengthen us to do that. Help us to enjoy our, uh, the remainder of our weekend, Lord. Help us to enjoy all the wonderful freedoms that uh, you've blessed this country with, Lord. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.